welcome to the 27th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and I'm here with our returned co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Well, hello there. It's nice to be back. And today we're interviewing Dr. Steve Palumbi, former director of and Jane and Marshall Steele Professor of Marine Science at Stanford's Hopkins Marine Station in Monterey, California. Steve is a member of the National Academy of Sciences. His lab team works in genetics, evolution, systemics, and conservation management of marine species. He's also written a couple of great books with his son, The Extreme Life of the Sea and The Death and Life of Monterey Bay. Uh, Steve, in my book, The Golden Shore, I quote you as saying that doing marine science in California is like living in Hawaii and working at Harvard, two things you've uh, previously done. So why don't we start there? What, what's so great about doing marine science in California? Hey David, nice to nice to see you and nice to meet you, Vicky. Thanks, thanks for this. You know, uh, marine science in California is this great nexus of an incredible amount of just boiling, burgeoning marine life, uh, the kelp forests and the inner tidal, the the marine mammals and, and all of that, uh, and and then a, a hugely amazing community of other marine scientists. Uh, I work in around Monterey Bay, and there's probably three hundred other marine scientists that are sort of working around around the bay. And then I get to go up to Stanford. Uh, we're about 90 miles away down at the Marine Station and just sort of immerse myself in the, all of the, the percolations of this incredible technology that's that's going on there. So that's why I see it. I've got this amazing technology that's being developed on one side and right on the other side is a great beach. And with, with hauled up seals and incredible bird life and part of this 1100 mile stretch of uh, golden shore that California has. But uh, you didn't start in California, did you? Where where'd you first encounter oh, no, no, no. the sea? Oh, I first encountered the sea in Ocean City, Maryland. Um, my my folks, uh, we grew up there in, in, in Baltimore and every 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 summer we would trek down to the beach at Ocean City and and that was our our vacation. So my first marine life was the the mussels and algae on the jetties sticking out from the the beaches and my first snorkel. Honestly, it was uh, just some little some little mask I bought on the boardwalk and and jumped in the water right into the middle of this pack of dogfish. These sharks that were three feet long they scared me to death. It was it was just amazing. Uh, I think it was eight or something. Um, so that was that was the first little bit of the ocean, and I just loved it. How'd you evolve into a marine scientist? What's your backstory? Oh well, you know, um, I didn't really know there was anything called you know a job being a scientist. I didn't know anything about that. My my dad was a teacher. We didn't know any professors or scientists or researchers. And so I was going to college and then suddenly discovered that, wow, these professors around had these jobs to, they would be paid to do research. And part of it would be able to be in the ocean. So I just thought that was the most amazing thing. It never occurred to me <laughs> that you could do that. I grew up on the East Coast and I remember one of my first snorkels was also around the boardwalk looking at dogfish and, uh, Pretty absolutely amazing. Um, and you've grown up and explored different oceans and have done a lot of work um, on coral reefs. And one of the things I'm really curious about is, you know, we're experiencing a lot of impacts, both human and climate change around coral reefs. And how do you, how do you envision that we navigate this challenge um, to steer coral reef health 
into the future because there are so many challenges. There really are, Vicky, and you know, almost everybody that I, you know, worked with and studied with in when I was in grad school and, and a little and beyond, they all have stories of reefs that were just fabulously gorgeous at the time that we were there and then have degraded and disappeared and you know just turned into rubble over over that time and we all have this abiding need to try to do as much as possible to to reverse that and bring things bring things back there's lots of reasons for that uh, i just participated in a national academy report on interventions to increase resilience of coral reefs to to climate change but it's also things that we do locally to uh, to coral reefs overfishing pollution sediment sedimentation but that wasn't your question your question was what to do about it right and so how do the, we navigate yes right. and the things that i have really found successful are navigating from the small communities out that um, top-down decisions about how we should save coral reefs are great and that sets the tone in this in the structure but actually getting that to happen means people doing that in the field and the best way to do that is for people in their homes in the villages and towns that are around coral reefs to be doing that now just to set it for some people who aren't familiar you know when i first uh, got on a coral reef when i was 15 and mom took my sister and me down to key west and it was like seeing this whole alien world you know living rocks you know it was 95 percent live coral cover today it's less than five percent so it's a result of overfishing of runoff pollution but also increasingly of climate change, of, uh, you know, coral bleaching as, as the waters warm, of ocean acidification that makes it harder for them to reform their skeletons. And as it's become a global issue, you've had a very interesting and particular approach, which is, I remember a few years ago, bemoaning to you the fact that 65% of the first section of the Great Barrier Reef that I dove on with my late love was gone, was was nuked by bleaching. And you said you were more interested in the other 35% that had survived and the genetics of it all. And maybe you can talk about what, what work you're doing around coral genetics. Sure, because that is something that I think we've tried to contribute to. The, the lab that I've built you know, over the years has done all kinds of different genetic work uh, from finding what whales are for sale in whale meat markets to doing the population biology to, to set up marine protected areas. But lately we've been concentrating on this, this question for, for corals, because when you do go to a reach that's bleached and, and for anybody who doesn't know, that's when the water temperature gets just a little bit too hot. I mean, just a degree or a degree and a half too hot. Corals spit out their internal algae. They turn white uh, and, and they mostly die, but they're not, they don't all die. And if you happen to be on a reef that has bleached, almost always you see that there's bleached corals, but some individuals, some other colonies of the same species are not bleached. And so, you know, from, a, from the standpoint of uh, an evolutionary biologist, an ecologist, a geneticist, you look at that and say, the potential to not bleach is there. The potential to survive is there. And that's an asset, maybe, that we can use to try to chart a, a, a better path into the future. So, so that's where we, we, we come into this, is saying simply phenomenologically, wow, why didn't those bleach? And isn't that interesting? And as we learn the answers to why they don't bleach, then we can learn how to use that asset 
um, to try to help things do better in the future. And do you have some initial ideas as far as why one green coral will survive when the ones around it die or an elkhorn, whatever species? Yeah, you know, it, it, it turns out that there's like a couple layers to that. And if you, you want to dig in, you want to really dig in, sure, they was going, yes. <laughs> um, so there's a couple layers that is, it's, the corals have symbionts. Sometimes they have more heat tolerant symbionts uh, than others. Uh, they have microbes in them all around, and sometimes they might have a little bit more heat tolerant microbial um, community than others. Also, corals are very reactive to uh, to the environment, and they can acclimate to warmer or cooler weather, just like we can acclimate to higher and lower elevations. So, if you happen to be at a mountain state in a mountain place right now, for example, body is not getting enough oxygen, so it's making more red blood cells uh, to to compensate for that. That's an acclimation. So, corals can do that if you give them a little bit warmer water, they acclimate, they change their physiology to get a little better. Um, so that's four, right? Symbionts, microbes, acclimation. And then the last one is adaptation where they have the right genes for it. And that's where we've been digging in to find out what component of this whole process the genes are. And the reason for that is that uh, the symbionts come and go, they're temporary. The microbes come and go, they're temporary. The acclimation comes and goes, it's temporary. If you really want a tool, if you really want to use heat resistant corals for something, the heat resistance better be permanent. And so we're looking for the permanent part of, of that. And that's, be, that's been an, an incredibly challenging basic biology problem, uh, which is really fun to chew into, but it's also a keen management problem and a keen conservation issue for the future. I've been working in the forest recently doing stories and reforestation is, it exists. It's, it's very hard to bring back, uh, you know, the kind of diverse forest we might lose in a fire, but increasingly people are looking to do more than just plant, you know, pines and lines. Do you see a future where coral reefs will be getting replanted or regrown? I do. And um, people are getting better and better at that over time. And it's interesting you bring up the forestry part because that's something I always go back to sort of as a metaphor for how this, this can be done. Uh, if you're going to plant a forest, say there's a disaster and you want to plant a forest and, and re regrow it again, you don't go out and start collecting clippings of trees and starting to root them and maybe grow them into something or other. You, you go to the nursery and you find this, the, the saplings and you find the small trees and you, and, and, and more and more uh, forestry has changed so that it's no longer restoration. It's now renewal. That is, you're not restoring exactly what was there before because as the climate changes, that's not necessarily appropriate. So the idea is that you're renewing the forest to be basically a little bit further along on the path of adapting to climate change. Maybe different species, maybe different um, genotypes of the same species planted in different places. So you're kind of doing an intervention because you have to replant it anyway to make it more resilient. And that's where I think the coral work is, is headed, but we're far behind forestry. Uh, looking for 
heat resistant genotypes, looking for the ones that grow better under, under low flow and high flow and deep and shallow, looking for the right species that mix together well. That, that subtlety, which is kind of going on in forestry, is, is where the coral restoration work is, is headed. So, you know, pines and lines, the way you said it, in, in corals isn't going to work because uh, that's not how corals grow. But we, if we're going to restore the reef, we have to renew the reef, and it has to be the way the reef might have grown itself, which is more nuanced than just plopping things where we think they should go. So with the coral restoration or assistance of those coral reefs, um, I think that's a really positive movement forward, and a lot of people are excited by that. But we also have a lot of other factors that we have to address. And you've been quoted um, as saying that we've been treating our ocean as a pantry and a toilet. So how do you address the coral science, the restoration, the replanting, along with the other challenges we have. And then how would you explain that we have a toilet and a pantry at the same time for our ocean? You know, uh, that is kind of one of the really strange and weird things about the ocean is that we put so much into it and then we take so much out of it. It's kind of, but, it, but what we put in, we don't want to, we don't want back out. <laughs> and you know, a vast majority of human human waste goes into streams or rivers and down the rivers and into the ocean where it's absorbed, transformed. The ocean is really good at that, it turns out. But of course, we are better at overwhelming it in a lot of different places. So um, the the flip side, of course, is is the, the pantry taking a lot of wild food out of the ocean. We don't get that much wild food anywhere else. Uh, forests, not really. I mean, there's some bushmeat that comes out of forests in, in, in Africa and South America, but it's really the ocean that we still look to for wild food. And those critters are basically having to live with whatever it is we, we, we put in there. Well, kind of that balancing act is a really important part of keeping the ocean um, going. Uh, like an example of where we're way over on the other side of that balancing act are dead zones. For example, if we're if what comes rushing down a river like the Mississippi is a huge amount of fertilizer from fields, it gets into the ocean, it fertilizes it. You think, oh, that's great, but then it over fertilizes it. Those little creatures, the little microbes, die. They decompose. All the oxygen is used up, and you've got these oxygen-free dead zones that that nothing can really live in. So that's where that's where what we put into the ocean just tips the balance of it of it entirely. Living in Colorado, people have often asked, well, what's the, what's the point? We, we live a thousand miles from the ocean. What do we have to do with it? And I say, follow the water because what we do inland, those impacts go into our streams, our rivers go down the Mississippi and yes, land right into the Gulf of Mexico. The other thing you can say about 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 boulders, it got one of the best dive shops I've ever been in. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for coming to visit us a couple of years ago. And um, actually, that leads me into a, a quick question. You had just published your your book, The Extreme Life of the Sea, and what you were looking at some favorite animals, some different habitats. Tell us a story about um, something out of your book that you really connect to. This actually isn't in the book. 
but the book is being reissued by Princeton Press in about six months, and so Tony and I wrote this into the new preface, because it wasn't quite published when the book went to press. And it's a story of a guy named Bruce Robeson in a submarine looking at an octopus. It's almost a mile deep in the Monterey Canyon. And what was special about that octopus was that it was a, it was a mother, and she had 160-some eggs on a rock in the canyon nearly a mile deep. And the other special thing about it was that Roby knew this octopus because he'd visited this octopus 17 times before. Wow. In the submarine, he found her just when she had laid those eggs. And the question was, nobody ever followed a, a, a deep sea octopus to find out how long it took to guard her eggs. And, and a female octopus lays eggs and then the she guards them. She doesn't move. She doesn't eat. Those are really tasty eggs. They're like, you know, curly fries of the deep sea. And so everything wants to eat them. And he just was like, well, how long, how long do you have to wait? How long does it take? So he went back every couple of months for 17 trips of four years in total. And finally, she was gone. The eggs were hatched. It was all over. And, and then he knew, well, it took a long, long, long time for that mother octopus to guard those eggs and have them hatch. Speaking of strange and extreme, you're well known for your genetics and applying genetic science to issues of, of overfishing whale populations and the like. I guess you're best known for early genetic experiment where you basically had to set up a DNA lab in your hotel room in Tokyo. Could you tell us that tale? That was a long time ago when the genetics we do now at the drop of a hat was a lot a lot harder and we had been approached by a group in hawaii called earth trust to they said we're pretty sure that there's humpback whales still being killed and sold into the japanese whale meat market they're totally protected internationally even in japan at the time and they said but we can't prove it is there any way to use genetics to try to to show what's going on in that in that market so postdoc at the time, Scott Baker and I sat down and worked out all of the details of how to take the, how to take the machinery to Japan and get the whale meat purchased by Japanese nationals brought to us and then do all the, all the steps, extract the DNA from the whale meat, copy the DNA into gazillions of copies using the polymerase chain reaction. And then we had to do something really, really different because we couldn't actually export the whale meat, or we didn't have the permits for it. But we also couldn't export the whale DNA either. And when you do a PCR test, you put a little bit of whale DNA in there. So we had to devise a way of stripping out the whale DNA from the copied DNA after the PCR test. It took a little bit of extra time to do that. Uh, but at the end, we were able to bring back the copies uh, without any permits, because they're just copies, and then sequence those copies uh, once we got back in this case, we were in Hawaii then, so we came back to Hawaii, sequenced them, and and then discovered eventually a couple of trips back and forth. We just dis we discovered a huge number of different whale species in in the market from various kinds of of illegal or um, unreported sources. And so your work actually resulted in some changes in Japanese seafood law. They did. It was one of those situations where the reaction was 
no, that doesn't happen. And besides, we fixed the problem. <laughs> so like, fine, <laughs> fine. It never happened, but you fixed the problem. So good. That's good. Steve, can you tell us about some of the toxins that we might be experiencing with the fish that we eat? Oh, Vicky, that's just such an, an amazing question because probably one of the, the, the strangest events of my whole scientific career was sitting in my lab. Um, we were at Harvard at the time and I had a data set that just came in and it was a data set from some collaborators in Japan where we had taken some whale meat and done genetic testing on it. And then at the same time, these collaborators took it and did toxicology of those those tests. And so I was sitting there and I had the day, two, two data sets together. I was putting them together for the first time. And what was staring at me was that in that market, there was uh, whale meat being sold, but it wasn't whale meat. It was dolphin meat. Oh. Dolphin meat had incredible loads of heavy metals in it. It was two, 20 times higher than safe levels of heavy metals. And it was the kind of load that children shouldn't eat, people shouldn't eat uh, at all, pregnant women certainly shouldn't eat. And so the, for the first time I'm sitting there, like uh, this is not only you know, like a conservation issue or a whale thing, this is dangerous. This is actually a serious health problem. And what do you do? What do you do with that? It's not your normal thing that a marine biologist has to come to come to grips with. Uh, so my collaborators and I decided we were going to very, for the first time, break the normal scientific publication process where you take your data, send it to peer review and all that. And once it's published, then you announce it because we couldn't wait for six months while people were buying this stuff and eating it. So we wrote a letter to the Japanese Minister of Health, just laying out the, the, the information and saying, this is a problem. And, you know, it's not a not a minor problem. There's a lot of this whale meat that we tested that is dolphin meat and the dolphin meat is toxic. And that created a huge stir and a huge storm in 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 that Japanese market. And a lot of changes were made, uh, in particular, a, a very strict labeling law for seafood was very quickly passed. The PCBs that some dolphins pick up and, and other marine mammals like beluga whales, uh, they co are concentrated in the, the, the fat of the, the animal. And there's only one way for that, those toxins to get out. And that's if you make milk, then the fatty milk that mothers feed their calves is also full of these toxins. And so there's stories of the first calf of many dolphin females dies because whole body load of toxins in that poor mother's body fat goes into the first milk and into the first calf and that calf dies. Um, that is so tragic. It just is totally tragic. What are you concentrating your lab science on today? What are sort of the, the issues you're addressing and how are you approaching them as, as a renowned scientist of the sea? I do have a job and that job is to save as much as possible because even if we stopped putting CO2 in the environment in the next 10 or 20 years, as you all know, David and, and Vicky, it's still going to get worse for a few more decades. And so my vision is, what do I do now so that by 2100, there is something good in the ocean to grow back from? 
one of the things that you always find out about the ocean when you sort of look into it at all is how exuberant it is, how productive, how 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 lively it is. That 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 female octopus, three quarters of a mile deep, had 160 eggs that she was guarding. And the the ability of marine populations to grow back is incredible if you let them. So so if we preserve chunks of it by 2100, it will grow back. If we let it grow back, it will. So that's, that's our job in, in terms of coral reefs. How do we find the corals that will live for the next 80 years? Um, for fisheries, how do we find a way to, to preserve enough fish in populations for the next 80 years? How do we, how do we find kelp forest where kelp forests need to grow in 80 years? And how do we make sure they are able to get there, get up that golden coast of, of yours, David? Where is the golden coast for kelp? going to be in, in 80 years and how do we make sure that they're able to grow there? That's kind of the, that's the mission. Um, not to shy away from the, the problems of climate change, but actually to say, okay, if we're smart enough, as sort of smart as we think we are, we can predict where it's going to be possible for these things to live. Let's go there and, and, and make sure they can do that. I'm very enthusiastic with the new administration's approach to protect 30% of land and ocean by 2030. And I feel like we now have the right climate and the awareness to go ahead and do exactly what you're saying. Look at those special areas, protect them, and let the ocean kind of rehabilitate in those certain areas and grow and be healthy. Steve, I loved the last time I visited your lab in the library there. There was a sign saying no wetsuits in the library. So clearly your, your scientists are studying in depth and um, you've got a whole beach full of hauled up seals and cormorants and pelicans circling around your lab. When you're done at work, uh, how do you go on to uh, your recreational side of your ocean stoke? Well, I mean, like you, you say, uh, David, I live in a magical, a magical place. And, you know, just, just taking people for a, a, a walk around the marine lab is just such an incredible thing. We did a project about a year ago before COVID hit and we had to sort of shut things down. I had 12 tide pools picked out and, and we just went from tide pool to tide pool with a group, a group of students and had them dig their, dig into them and figure out what was in them. And, um, and just just explain some of the little things that that are there. If you if you look into a tide pool or if you anywhere in the intertidal, the more you look, the more you see. And so you find yourself looking in these under rocks and these little things and these these hermit crabs the size of your you know the tip of your pinky, and, and just really getting into all the intricacies of that. And then you look up and you realize there's a seal staring at you uh, from the other side of that rock. And beyond that, the pelicans are flying by and there's dolphins back there. And it's like you, the scale of, of it being this magnificent ocean life is, is, is just incredible. So that's, that's, but that's work. That's the work side. (laughs) (laughs) I spent 10 years in Santa Cruz running Save Our Shores and I absolutely love Monterey Bay. Um, so it's really fun talking with you and, and having those memories of the tide pools and whales and all the amazing wildlife in that region. Um, so I would just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about your career, some of your priorities, uh, your excitements with the ocean, 
And we want to thank you for all the work that you're doing to inspire students and also with your writings to inspire the rest of us. So back at you for both of you. Take care, Steve. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.